Welcome to this week's episode of the RI Science Podcast. Professor Anne Ferguson-Smith describes how our environment affects our genome and the intricate machinery of heritability. Anne goes through how we inherit genetic material from our parents, why you need both a mother and a father, and why our actions may have genetic consequences for future generations. Tonight we're exploring an issue that, according to something I read on Twitter this week, don't judge me, has become dangerously fashionable. Uh, It's epigenetics, of course. Um, The science of epigenetics has been around for quite a while, and like any big, exciting area of science, it's also been very well hyped. Uh, We've been told that everything we know about nature and nurture will have to be rewritten, that we might have to be careful about how we behave from smoking to overeating before we have children in case we pass on some kind of terrible legacies to our children and our grandchildren. And as a parent of a two-year-old, I can tell you myself, it's a topic that has worried me for many years. As a science journalist, though, I've learned to be rather more of a sceptic. In fact, it's our guest today who I called for a balanced perspective when I was writing a feature about this um, for The Observer a few years ago. So I'm very honoured to be able to introduce you to her tonight. She's Anne Ferguson-Smith, Head of the Department of Genetics and Arthur Balfour Professor of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. She has made an enormous contribution to epigenetics, especially her work on parental origin effects and epigenetic mechanisms. So I hope she can help us, all of us, both understand what epigenetics is and also what its real implications are for parenting and what we inherit from our parents to understand that better. Over to Anne Ferguson-Smith. Thanks, Angela. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. This is one of my favorite places. I'm uh, going to take you on a journey today addressing really five uh, uh, aspects of the field of epigenetics. First of all, a bit of background, what is it? Uh, And then I want to tell you about the three essential functions of epigenetic modifications in mammalian genomes. What did epigenetic modifications evolve to actually do? Then I want to tell you a bit about my favorite epigenetic paradigm, that of genomic imprinting, uh, which is an epigenetic, a really epigenetic uh, 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 mechanism, uh, a process that is caused by epigenetic modifications. And actually, one of the challenges that you'll see as as I talk is really trying to attribute um, uh, outcomes to epigenetic events. People correlate epigenetic states with outcomes, but actually showing that they cause uh, um, outcomes is very, very difficult. And uh, imprinting is one of, the, one of the paradigms which we really, we, we really know is epigenetically controlled, and it's provided a very useful model for understanding epigenetic inheritance. Uh, then there's, I want to just have one slide uh, to illustrate to you a very important concept, and that is that our epigenomes are erased from one generation to the next. And that has important implications for how we think about about, um, non-genetic inheritance. Because, of course, inheritance is genetic, okay? And this is something that's a little bit different from from genetics. And and trying to uh, infer epigenetic inheritance uh, as opposed to genetic inheritance is is a a very important thing to to really understand and think, think about very carefully. 
And then finally, I'm going to talk about to what extent does the environment talk to our genomes, our DNA, via our epigenomes, via this layer of stuff that I'm going to uh, explain to you about today. Okay, so to place everything in context, we all know that our blueprint of life is encoded in our double, this double strand of DNA, and we often think of it as a linear organization of A's and T's and G's and C's, but actually it's not. It's, uh, 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 it's actually two to three meters long in each one of our cells, and it has to be bundled into a six-micron nucleus. So that's a really challenging uh, uh, thing to do. And that DNA, therefore, is packaged. And it's packaged into a state called chromatin. And that chromatin is bundled into these um, bundles, packages, called chromosomes. And then these chromosomes are located within our nuclei. And um, it's more than just packaging, the formation of our chromosomes and the organization of our chromosomes. It actually is a highly regulated uh, and very important process that actually differs from one cell type to another. So the unit of chromosome packaging, if you like, is called the nucleosome. Our DNA is wound around uh, four pairs of proteins, histone proteins, that are um, uh, illustrated here in this beauty beautiful uh, nucleosomal structure. It's called the nucleosome. Here are the histone proteins, and around them is wound our DNA. Um, and multiple nucleosomes are all aligned together with the DNA round, wound around it. So rather than, uh, uh, it's sort of a, a string on beads kind of organization. And that's what forms the chromatin, which is then wound even more into our, the bundles that, that we call chromosomes. So while all our cells have the same DNA genome and the same number of chromosomes, these different cell types have to read different DNA codes within these cells. So what we see here is a, a, an early embryo with early embryonic cells, which have to activate stem cell genes. Here are neurons here. They have to activate brain genes and keep the embryonic stem cell genes off. And here is an abnormal lung cancer cell that expresses cancer genes. And this is all happening from the same chromosomes and the same DNA. So really, something is making this uh, uh, DNA be read differently. And in fact, if, you've been, if you keep track of what's going on in the New Yorker magazine recently, there's a big debate as to uh, what's the most important stuff that, 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 that does this, that makes uh, DNA be read differently in cells. And without doubt, uh, one of the most important features are these factors, these proteins called transcription factors. These are proteins that bind to the DNA at specific regions and turn specific genes on and off. But the other key component of this process is a so-called epigenetic one. These modifications, chemical attachments to the DNA and to these core histones that contribute to the accessibility of the chromosome to these transcription factors and allow genes to be on or off. So while we have one genome and each cell is expressing a different repertoire of transcription factors, each cell, we also have many epigenomes that are specific to these cell types that interact with these transcription factors and regulate the, the, the reading of the DNA code in these different cell types. 
Right, so this is where I start to talk a little bit about, I've talked about epigenetics, but I haven't really told you what it is. Um, my friend Kat Arney recently uh, wrote a, a very entertaining book called Herding Hemingway's Cats, and it's about contemporary molecular genetics and all the cool things about genome uh, regulation that we think about today. And chapter 10 is about epigenetics, and she calls it Pimp My Genome. And actually, if you want a, 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 um, a definition of epigenetics, pimping our genome is exactly what what epigenetics is. But of course, you can't get a grant for, uh, on, on pimping genomes. So, um, uh, so actually, over the years, um, there have been a number of, of explorations as to what uh, epigenetics, what might be the right definition for epigenetics. I mean, literally, of course, it means uh, above, on, or over uh, genetics, which is the study of genes and her heredity. And that's actually what it is. It sits on top of our genes. I think the most accepted one now is um, from, from Adrian Bird, who's very, very wise and actually has been, uh, he's really the father of DNA methylation uh, and pretty much everything he's ever written about DNA methylation is absolutely correct. And I, and I think that, that most of us uh, in the field uh, think that this uh, definition is, um, is probably the most, uh, the most realistic one, which is about the structural adaptation of chromosomal regions so as to register, signal, or perpetuate altered activity states. So that's not really about transcription factors interacting with the genes. It's about something that is influencing the structure of the chromosome in such a way that, um, that uh, impacts genome function. And the key uh, feature is this heritability, this perpetuation. There's something about this uh, which, is, which is about, um, about a memory that is not genetic, a non-genetic memory. So, um, but my favorite definition is this one. I think of it as genetics with knobs on because I'm from Scotland. And actually, that's very much what it, what it really is. It's about genetics, our genetic material with knobs on it that influences how that genetic material is functioning. But there is this concept of perpetuation, memory, and heritability that I will uh, allude to as I go through. So what are these knobs? What are these epigenetic modifications uh, to the DNA and the chromatin that affect how our genome functions? Well, the first thing, that the, the one that we know the most about, actually, is DNA methylation. So at the um, C uh, nucleotide, in um, mammalian genomes, there is an opportunity for the fifth carbon to acquire um, a methyl group on it. The important thing about DNA methylation is that it can be maintained during cell division by a very well understood enzymatic process. It can be perpetuated as a memory from one cell to its daughters. There is no other epigenetic modification for which this is true. So this provides a somatic cell heritability, a body cell heritability of an epigenetic state that is non-genetic. You can transmit information from one cell to another that is not genetic. So it's almost like the heritability of DNA itself, that you have the ability to transmit a memory of methylation from one cell to its daughter. The other set of knobs that we know about are these modifications to the core histones. So these histones are sitting in the middle of the nucleosome, surrounded by DNA, and they have these tails uh, sticking out like this. And these tails uh, on this protein have the, the uh, possibility of acquiring chemical modifications. 
And that changes the properties of the protein. So, for example, this nucleosome that might have a modification, a chemical modification on this tail here, might, that, that modification might influence its ability to interact with a neighboring nucleosome. In fact, it does. So many of these modifications are charged, and they can affect uh, repulsion and attraction between adjacent nucleosomes. And that has an impact on the structure of the way the chromatin is packaged. So I'm not going to go into lots of details about this, but, uh, but basically this is the so-called post-translational modification of histone proteins with these chemicals that impact the organization of these nucleosomes. Now, this is not a heritable modification in the same way that DNA methylation is. To our knowledge, there is no enzyme that we know about that recognizes a modification on, on one histone and then after replication puts that modification, uh, recognizes the modification on the old one and puts it on the new one. It doesn't work that way. Um, there, is a, there is a regulated reassembly of chromatin after replication. Uh, so, so the marks can, in fact, be propagated through the presence of histones that are modified uh, during replication, but it's not, uh, it's not an enzymatic process. So the marks can be, uh, uh, put, uh, can be propagated, but they can also be dynamically changed. And during development, these modifications can be very dramatically uh, uh, changed, taken on and put off again through enzymes that write the marks on. There are enzymes that read the mark, that recognize nucleosomes if they're modified in particular ways. And there are also enzymes that will strip the mark away. Okay. So we have uh, these two types of epigenetic modifications, one that happens on DNA, DNA methylation, and the other that happens on the proteins that package the DNA into chromosomes. So what does this mean for the function of the, of the chromosome and the function of the gene? Well, it means that if a gene is on, it's generally associated with a region where the chromosome is open. It's not too compact. It's got modifications that are associated with more relaxed, open chromatin. If a gene is off, the chromatin is in the region is generally much more condensed. Basically, the take-home message is that there are modifications to histones that are associated with openness and activity, and modifications to histones that are associated with compaction and closing. And different cells will have these modifications in different places, as I'll show you in a little while. Okay, so I want to uh, 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 switch gears. So why is this important? What have epigenetic modifications evolved to do? And really, epigenetic modifications have evolved to regulate three essential processes in, in mammalian cells, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about all of them. The first is, is that they contribute to the architecture of our chromosomes. The second is that they manage what I call genomic parasites, and I'll explain what I mean there um, uh, in a bit. And, of course, they contribute, as I spoke about in the, in the beginning, to the dynamic regulation of gene expression. And that's what everybody thinks about and talks about very much. But, in fact, these other two processes about um, managing genomic parasites and contributing to functional architecture are, are equally as important. Um, and um, I'll uh, uh, explain the first now. So, so epigenetic modifications are important for our chromosome architecture and our cellular uh, integrity. And that's because... Um, 
So these are chromosomes, they're quite condensed, and at the end you see these things called telomeres, um, and in, in the center here you have this, these regions called uh, cent uh, centromeres. These are human chromosomes here, and we have 40, 46 of them. Um, and what's very important is the structure of this uh, centromere here, because this centromere is required during cell division for the spindle that pulls the chromosomes apart into the daughter cells to make a proper attachment, uh, a proper firm attachment, and segregate our genome into the daughter cells after DNA replication. And if you can't make a proper centromere, uh, and, the, and you can't have a good structural integrity around this bit here, this goes all floppy and it doesn't work properly. So um, an experimental example of this, in fact, this was the first experiment that really showed that histone modifications were important epigenetic regulators of cellular function in mammals. We actually knew about it in Drosophila and other organisms, but nobody had really shown this in mammals. Uh, and a, the group of uh, Thomas Genowine and Antoine Peters um, did a beautiful study where they mutated the enzyme that put the H3K9 trimethylation on centromeres. So these are mouse chromosomes now. If you notice, they're a little bit different from human chromosomes. Their centromeres are at the top. So what Peters and Genowine did was they knocked out the enzyme that puts this modification on this histone. And what happened was that instead of having mouse cells have 40 chromosomes, humans have, have, have 46, but what happened, instead of having a normal wild-type cell, they ended up screwing up the chromosome numbers of the cells because the, there was abnormal segregation of chromosomes because the spindles couldn't make the attachments properly and segregate the chromosomes into the daughter cells. And this is actually what happens in cancer a lot of, a lot of the times. The chromosome, there's, there's abnormal chromosome numbers um, and that's uh, uh, one of the reasons why our, our centromeres are so important. And it just it, it, it proved that epigenetic modifications were essential for generating these structural entities around the centromeres that help the chromosomes uh, um, uh, divide uh, or, or segregate into daughter cells. What do I mean when I talk about the management of genomic parasites? Well, I'm not sure whether you're aware but in fact, only 1.5% of our DNA actually codes for proteins. Okay? A large chunk of it contains regulatory sequences, about 20%. Um, another 15% uh, contains uh, regions that don't code for proteins, but are actually transcribed anyway, and I'll give you an example of why that's important. But 55% of it is repeated multiple times. So most of our genome has bits of DNA that are repeated over and over and over and over again. And that's really amazing, actually. And it's been very, very understudied in mammalian cells, and that's because it's really difficult to sequence it. Because, because it's repeated so often, uh, you sequence it and you don't know how many of it there is, you don't know where it belongs. Uh, but finally, now that sequencing technology has got much better, we've been able to really uh, pay a lot more attention to it. And what we discover is, in fact, that a large proportion of this, 44%, um, has the potential to jump around. So these repetitive pieces of DNA have the potential to be mobile. And that's actually in part because they 
they have um, viral-like sequences. So they're, they're, very, they're, they're called endogenous retroviruses. They're sequences that are uh, embedded within our genome that look like viruses, that have genes and sequences within them that allow them to move. And that, as you can imagine, would be very bad news. If this much of our genome actually started to move around all the time, we would, it would interrupt our genes, it would mutate our genes, we wouldn't be able to make eggs and sperm properly, it would be absolutely dreadful. And so it's very important that these repetitive elements become silenced. And in fact, we know now that epigenetic modifications are targeted specifically to these regions, and they shut them off. They stop them moving around. They, they compact them in such a way that it becomes very difficult for them to, for, for example, pair with other regions of the genome that look a little bit like them that might cause the chromosomes not to segregate properly during cell replication. But anyway, the modifications render them immobile and repressed. And I think that that's one of the most important things that epigenetic modifications could evolve to do. And we're very interested in understanding what this 55% of our repeat genome ha might potentially do because it's been around in our genomes for a while and, and, and perhaps it's co-opted functions that might be actually important. Um, there might be a, a, a symbiotic relationship between our repetitive genome and our, act, and our genes. And now that the technology, the sequencing technology has got much better, we can actually start to ask questions about this. But it's a huge amount. It's a very important, uh, it's a very important finding that more than half of our genome is repeated over and over again. Quite amazing. And I want to show you an example of how that actually might have an effect on genes. This is a really intriguing mouse model that was discovered in the 60s. And in fact, these six mice here in front of you are genetically identical, but they look very, very different. And as they get a little bit older, these yellow ones are going to get really obese and diabetic and, um, uh, and not healthy at all, whereas this brown one is a nice, normal mouse. So we've got a brown one, a yellow one, and everything in between. So this difference in phenotype, in appearance, is caused by the insertion of a repetitive sequence into uh, a region next to the coat color gene called agouti. And this repeat region in each of these individuals is, is modified, is epigenetically modified differently and this results in an impact on the neighboring coat color gene, and I'll illustrate this in a minute. So the DNA methylation of this repeat um, makes the mouse more brown. So normally you'd want this repeat to, be, uh, to recruit repressive marks like DNA methylation, histone modification, shut it down, and that's what's happened in this brown mouse here. But in this yellow mouse, this repeat element has not recruited the epigenetic machinery uh, as well as this one, and this has had an impact on the expression of the agouti gene. And what happens is that when this region is not methylated, there is a sequence here that drives expression all the way through this region and makes lots and lots and lots of this coat color um, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, much too much of it, and this makes the mouse yellow. This coat color gene also influences metabolism uh, in the brain, and that's why these animals get fat and diabetic. The brown mouse express, doesn't express this, trans, this um, uh, repeated element because it's heavily methylated, it's shut down, so it does nice normal expression of the coat color gene. It stays nice and thin and it's nice and brown. So this is an example of non-genetic uh, control of phenotype.
And that's one of the take-home messages that I want you to have today, is that epigenetic mechanisms provide a non-genetic uh, um, uh, mechanism for regulating outcome. Okay. And finally, um, and I alluded to this earlier, epigenetic the third thing that epigenetic modifications do is regulate the expression of genes. Uh, this is the enzyme RNA polymerase that, that turns genes on and makes RNA from this strand of DNA, which is wound around its particularly modified histones, and it's in an open state, uh, so this gene can be on. And here you have a situation where the polymerase can't get in because this, this uh, chromatin is all compacted, so there is no gene expression. Histone modifications can uh, regulate uh, uh, this uh, process in different cell types. As I mentioned, here is the neuron again. In this neuron, brain genes are on. So here we have DNA with um, regions that are open because they want to express brain genes um, in this neuron. So this actually, there's, there's, a, there's a term called euchromatin, which means open, uh, open chromatin. Heterochromatin is closed and compacted. And here in a cardiomyocyte, you don't want to express brain genes. You want to have them turned off. So this is very heterochromatinized. And the heart gene, which is, now cl which is closed in the neuron, becomes open and accessible to the, um, to the polymerase, the enzyme that makes the RNA and turns the gene on. So that's how epigenetic modifications interact with, um, with factors that control transcription. I wanted, so that was very much about histone modifications. I wanted to put in one slide about DNA methylation because uh, there's sort of a dogma in the field that DNA methylation comes along, methylates something, and turns a gene off. Actually, it's not as simple as that because, in fact, our DNA is very heavily methylated everywhere, pretty much everywhere, with the exception of a few special places. But sometimes methylation comes along and can cause a, a change in gene expression or can, can regulate gene expression. So DNA methylation is not such a big deal as, as a lot of people think it is in terms of gene regulation. It, has, it acts at very select regions, particular regulatory features. The other point I wanted to make here is that often you see changes in DNA methylation that are not causing a change in expression, but are a consequence of a change in expression. So, for example, if a transcription factor comes along and binds to a piece of DNA, the DNA methylation machinery can't get to the sequences that are underneath it. And so that region of DNA is protected from DNA methylation. But that's not causing any regulatory function. That's as a consequence of the transcription factor binding. So, so, for, so, when people, so I think it becomes very important to think about, um, I'm a skeptic too, to, to question um, a lot of the, 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 the dogma that's in the field uh, and really look at the data very carefully when people say that DNA methylation is regulating gene expression because sometimes it is, but more often than not, it is not. Okay. Now I'm going to move to my uh, favorite epigenetic paradigm and tell you about genomic imprinting, which is, uh, which is uh, epigenetics at work um, in a, in a real-life situation. And I want to go back to basics here. It's not because I, I, I think you don't know that when an egg fertilizes, uh, is fertilized by a sperm, you get a baby. I'm sure you know all that. Um, this is about me introducing to you to the very important concept of blue chromosomes and red chromosomes. Okay? So our sperm is carrying a set of chromosomes that we inherit from our father as an embryo. 
And our egg harbors a set of chromosomes that as an embryo comes from mum. So we have 23, set, 23 chromosomes from dad, 23 chromosomes to, uh, from mum, and together we have 46 chromosomes in all our cells. Half of them are red and half of them are blue. And I say this now because I'm going to use blue and red chromosomes uh, a lot in this ne these next few slides. So imprinting was uh, discovered in 1984 independently by these two guys here, Davor Salter and Azim Sarani, um, and, uh, and really it's, um, it's epigenetics in action. And it, when I read about this when I was a graduate student, I, I was absolutely smitten. And this was the experiment that, that, that really got me excited about epigenetics. We didn't know anything about epigenetics when they did this experiment. So what they did was they took a newly fertilized mouse egg called a zygote, and this is, the, this is a bag of chromosomes that came in, uh, that, that have come from mother, so this is the egg, this, these were actually there all the time, this is the maternally inherited set of chromosomes, and here is the set of chromosomes that came from the sperm, and they're actually in two separate bags, and you can, called pronuclei, and you can whip them out if you have a very small pointed needle and a very good microscope. And in fact, it was Sheila Barton who did this experiment. So she took out the male pronucleus and replaced it with a second set of female chromosomes, generating an embryo that had 46 chromosomes, but instead of one coming from dad, one set coming from dad and one set coming from mum, two copies came from mum. Or if she took out the female pronucleus and replaced it with a second male pronucleus, she generated a diploid embryo where both sets of chromosomes came from dad. And the embryos did not survive. So she took these embryos, put them into pseudo-pregnant recipient female mice, females that, that thought they were pregnant, and then they became pregnant with these embryos. And what happened was that the embryos failed. Uh, the diploid maternal or, or gynogenetic embryo uh, makes a nice normal looking but very, very small embryo with very little extra embryonic tissues. They can't make a placenta. And here you have the opposite. In fact, you very rarely get an embryo at all. You mostly just get a placenta. Uh, and this is, occasionally you get a very rudimentary, ugly little embryo thing. So this said that being diploid was not enough. You needed a set of chromosomes from mum and a set of chromosomes from dad to make a healthy mammalian baby. Now, that's not true of lizards and Komodo dragons and things, but, but it is true of, of, of mammals. And so I read about this, and I thought, oh, my goodness, these two sets of chromosomes, they actually look the same um, in terms of their DNA content, but they're functioning very differently. So, these, uh, so this, these findings were really profound. Being diploid is not enough. You need a set from mom and a set from dad. That tells us that the maternally inherited set is functioning differently from the paternally inherited set. That's not what Mendelian genetics has told us in the past. Um, the maternally and paternally inherited chromosomes seem to know whether they're red or blue. So this process of imprinting, this process that makes the two parental chromosomes different that, that they had shown in the mouse, is conserved in humans. So what's going on here? 
So here's where we have our blue and our red chromosomes. So here is, um, instead of looking at the whole genome now, I'm just picking out a pair of them, a pair of chromosomes. Here is a red chromosome that was inherited from mum, a blue chromosome that was inherited from dad. And we have two genes here. Actually, we have three genes here. This gene is not imprinted and represents most genes in our body. Uh, these genes are either expressed from both parental chromosomes or not expressed from both parental chromosomes. They behave the same way. But there is about 200 of the 20,000 genes that we have in our bodies, uh, in, our, in our cells, that are expressed in the following way. They're expressed from only one of the two parental chromosome homologues. I want to say that imprinted genes are not expressed differently in boys and girls. This is not about being a boy or a girl. So when you were um, embryos in your mother's womb, you were all expressing the insulin-like growth factor 2 gene that you inherited from your father. Your mother's copy was silent. Males and females, all exactly the same. Okay? So how on earth does the transcriptional machinery of the cell tell the difference between these two chromosomes? These two genes look the same, but it's only activating this one and repressing this one. And I'll come to that in a minute. It's about epigenetic modifications. In fact, it's about DNA methylation. So... Um, most of the imprinted genes have been identified now, and there's, as I say, there's about 200 of them, and if we look at what they do, um, you can see that uh, we've catalogued these, and we can see that they're, they're, they're important for making placentas, important for energy homeostasis, important for brain and behavior, and various other um, important uh, developmental and postnatal functions. So there are these recurrent themes. So... What happens when imprinting goes wrong? Well, there are quite a lot of... Um, well, they're not actually quite a lot. It's very rare to find abnormalities where imprinting has gone wrong because there's not that many imprinted genes. But in fact, there are, um, um, there are several um, key concepts in imprinting disorders that I wanted to share with you. Here's one that is uh, very well studied uh, called Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. It's, uh, it's not a very uh, severe uh, disorder, except there's an increased incidence of childhood tumors in Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. It's a fetal overgrowth disorder where there's a multi-organ hyperplasia, uh, organ overgrowth. Um, and it's, it's caused by the overexpression of a growth promoter and the... Uh, um, absence of expression of an inhibitor of cell division. So this, there's too much cell proliferation going on. There are eight human imprinted syndromes, um, and um, um, they all exhibit parental origin effects. They're associated with either paternal duplications or maternal duplications. I'm not going to go through all of them, but they all uh, exhibit these kinds of, of, of imprinting, imprinting features. But what's really interesting about this, actually, is that, um, you know, eight syndromes is not very many. Why should we be interested in this? But actually, if we look at the kind of recurrent themes that are showing up, they all affect growth. Either, they either affect growth, metabolism, or brain function. So there are features of mental retardation, behavioral problems, neurological disorders, diabetes, obesity, growth, uh, growth phenotypes, and cancer. And in fact... These genes are all contributing to pathways regulating very common diseases. So it's not just imprinted disorders that are... Um, uh, so we can, we can learn by understanding the function of these genes in these contexts, we can learn about the, the, the more common pathways, uh, the, com more, the, the pathways that are regulating these more common diseases that, uh, that these genes are, are, are influencing. And perhaps mutations in these other pathways would result in similar disorders, but they're not imprinted. 
So how does the expression machinery tell the difference between these two parental chromosomes? We know that imprinting is regulated by DNA methylation that differs on the two parental chromosomes. So this is just a zoom in now of the blue and the red chromosome at a particular imprinted gene. And you can see here is a DNA methylation mark that is on the gene when it's on the maternally inherited chromosome, but there's no methylation when it's on the paternally inherited chromosome. And this mark is, uh, is what's happening in all our bodies at, uh, at, at for example, the CDKN1C, this, this, this cell cycle regulator gene. Now, this mark actually was inherited, was, was placed on our chromosomes at a time when, these two, when our two sets of chromosomes were separated from each other in the germline. And this is where, 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 where the sex of the parent does come in. So the egg, uh, a, a mother, places methyl marks at this region um, in, in her germline, in her lineage that makes her eggs. But in the paternal germline, there is no, uh, in, in the sperm, there is no methylation placed at this region. So in egg development, methylation is put on, but in sperm development, methylation is not. And that means that when an egg is fertilized by a, this egg is fertilized by a sperm, you have a differentially methylated region at the same part of the genome on the two chromosomes. That is actually the imprint. So there's a germline-derived differential methylation Actually, this, this, this is a germline-derived methylation event put on at different places in the egg and in the sperm that after fertilization is maintained as a heritable memory of the parental origin of that chromosome. So that chromosome always will know that it's a blue chromosome. It always will know it's a red chromosome, no matter where in the body it is, because it's, 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 it's inherited that differential mark, and because I told you that DNA methylation can be propagated from one cell division to another in all the cells of our body, it, it, it results in this memory of parental origin. So it is a real memory that is not genetic. Okay? It's a non-genetic memory, and it's really remarkable. Okay, one important thing before I go on to the very final thing I wanted to tell you about in a few slides, um, which is about transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, is to say one, this one, uh, one slide on how the epigenome is reprogrammed from one generation to the next. So I've told you that we're, our genome acquires all these epigenetic modifications in all our different cells. And during development, um, we're setting aside a set of cells that are going to become our eggs and our sperm. These are called primordial germ cells. They're deployed, and they have epigenetic marks across, the whole, across all the chromosomes. Methylation knobs, histone modification knobs. And in fact, this reprogramming that I'm going to tell you about happens twice. There is two phases of genome-wide reprogramming that removes all the epigenetic marks from our chromosomes. The first one happens in these cells that are going to give rise to eggs and sperms. So these germ cells that are going to give rise to adult sperm and adult eggs that will fertilize and make an embryo, uh, these, these primordial germ cells are going to lose all their epigenetic marks. So the, and it's manifest here as methylation, blanc. So this germ cell is epigenetically naked. Then quite remarkably, in the male germline and in the female germline, it starts to put new marks back on that are specific to being a sperm or being an egg. 
So here, upon fertilization, this sperm and this egg with its, newly, uh, its new marks, including the imprints that are put on, um, uh, fertilize each other and you get this zygote, this newly fertilized egg, and lo and behold, it does it all again. Okay? It takes all these epigenetic marks, it's finished being an egg and a sperm, and it erases them again. So DNA methylation and histone modifications are lost um, uh, from both the maternal set of chromosomes and the paternal set of chromosomes. And around the time of implantation, uh, uh, when we were all implanting into our, uh, into our mother's womb, we start to get these marks all back again. There is one exception to this second wave of reprogramming, and that's these imprinting control regions. So if you were to erase the imprinting control regions in, this, uh, in these newly fertilized egg, you'd lose your memory of parental origin, and you wouldn't be able to imprint anymore. So these ones are protected. So everything else is lost except for imprints. And we know the mechanism of this. I'm not going to go into it, but, but, uh, but it's, um, it's pretty cool. Okay. So, uh, so, so that's why it's very hard to transmit an epigenetic memory from one generation to the other uh, because everything, including imprints, is erased in this, uh, uh, when you're making eggs and sperm for the next generation. Okay? So that's really important because there is a, um, there is a, a, a very exciting field at the moment emerging about the extent to which the environment talks to the genome via the epigenome and whether that has an impact on the health of the offspring and, in fact, on the well-being of our grandchildren. Now, that's asking an awful lot because, as I've told you, if epigenetic marks are, are erased, that shouldn't happen. And, in fact, that's probably why epigenetic marks are erased, so that doesn't happen. Um, uh, but there is some thought that perhaps epigenetic modifications, some epigenetic modifications might be resistant to this reprogramming. I'll tell you right now, we don't know the answer to this properly. Okay, so what is the, how, how do we explore the environmental inf uh, influence on, uh, on health via epigenetics? It's well established from both epidemiological studies and from animal models that the environment in which you're exposed to in utero has an impact on your health and well-being um, as, a, uh, as offspring and as adults. This is called the developmental origins of health and disease. And it was, a, it was um, um, developed, this hypothesis, the thrifty phenotype hypothesis, was developed by uh, Barker and Hales in the early 1990s. And the idea here is that if the, the, the fetus is developing in a nutrient-poor environment, it's being programmed to be born into a nutrient-poor environment and therefore has a survival advantage over its offspring. Uh, uh, it has a survival advantage. However, if this programmed fetus is born into a nutrient-rich environment, it's maladapted, mal it's poorly programmed, and therefore it has increased susceptibility to metabolic disease. And in fact, all the animal models and the epidemiological studies are consistent with this kind of idea. So there is, uh, actually, there's become a dogma in the field that this memory of uh, environmental compromise in utero is an epigenetic one. And in fact, the evidence for that is not very clear at all. I'll say right now is we don't know what the mechanism is. We know that there is some sort of memory of an insult, but we don't know what that mechanism is. Animal models are very useful for exploring this, 
so you can starve a pregnant female, her pups will be born small, um, and they will go on to get fat and diabetic or have cardiovascular disease or have neurological defects. But what's very interesting is that in some cases you can take these animals fed normally uh, and in fact um, uh, transmit this phenotype from one generation to the next. And so the question arises, to what extent is this effect of this insult regulated by an epigenetic memory? And to what extent is this transmission from one generation to the next caused by an epigenetic memory that perhaps might fail to be properly um, erased in, during, uh, during the germline reprogramming that I told you about? I want to just close uh, uh, telling you about the Dutch hunger winter, which, which I'm sure many of you will have heard about, which is um, a, a birth cohort that was born during the Second World War at a time when uh, uh, Nazi, the Nazis were, were um, uh, besieging uh, the Dutch, uh, some of the Dutch villages. And this resulted in a dramatic decline in a very well-defined window uh, of, um, of caloric intake um, of, the, of, of, of uh, uh, um, mothers, uh, fathers, and, and, and offspring in that period. And what happened, therefore, was that there was considerable undernourishment during pregnancy. Uh, as a result, um, this uh, early life compromise in utero had an impact on adult health outcome. The individuals were born small, and they ended up having a range of adverse outcomes, obesity and diabetes, increased risks of schizophrenia, anxiety and depression, and increased risks of coronary heart disease. This suggested that there was a heritable memory of that environmental insult transmitted from the parent to the offspring that became manifest later on in the adulthood of the offspring. The effects appeared to be not genetic because when, when comparing the famine offspring with siblings from the same period conceived after the famine, the siblings were found to be normal weight, did not have adult onset health problems. Um, and so really, how can individuals with similar genetic makeups have such different outcomes when, uh, uh, when the only thing that was different was their environment, suggesting that the environment was talking to the genome in some kind of way, influencing the gene, the gene activity uh, that influenced the disease um, in, in offspring. So the hypothesis is that there is an environmental impact affecting epigenetics. Okay, so I've gone on a little bit too long. I do want to just close here and thank my group. We, we do quite a lot of work in all these areas um, and, uh, and the funders, um, the Wellcome Trust, the MRC, the BBSRC and the EU uh, uh, Commission for funding a lot of this work. And I thank you for your attention. Well, um, Professor Ferguson-Smith has kindly allowed you to ask as many stupid questions as you like, so <laughs> go crazy. Um, that was such an interesting talk, really. I mean, thank goodness for our epigenome. Where would we be without it? Yeah. Like those yellow mice. Um, uh, just to start us off, I wanted to ask one thing, which is, um, as mothers and as grandparents even now, given all the epigenetic stuff that is coming out, we feel so guilty about our actions anyway as parents. Now epigenetics is telling us, perhaps given the Dutch famine results, that perhaps we should feel guilty even more for the things that we do before we have our children. Um, but it's interesting there that you saw the effect 
in fathers, but not in mothers. Yeah. And mothers are usually the ones that get the most flack, you know, in, right. in how they behave during pregnancy right. and beforehand. What does that say? So I think that's a really, a really, really interesting and important point. So there are, there are two components to this. One is that um, um, when you do experiments where you're looking for transgenerational effects of environmental stressors on, on offspring, it's, it's, it's a better experiment to do it by transmitting through fathers. And, uh, and let me just explain why. So, so when you have a, um, a pregnant female mouse and you undernourish, you calorically restrict by 50%, have a small pup that's born and end up getting offspring that get fat and diabetic when they, when they get older, this happens to both male offspring and female offspring. But female offspring that you want to study there, if you want to study the offspring of the females, it's confounded because these females are fat and diabetic and you don't know if the impact on the offspring is because they've been exposed to a diabetic mother in utero uh, or because the grandmother was exposed to undernutrition. So that's not a very clean experiment and it's very difficult to interpret. But the father, the transmission through father is much better because the father doesn't give anything to offspring except a bit of DNA. You know, he provides his sperm. He doesn't provide anything else, really. Um, that's men for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's actually a very clean experiment. So if you have an undernourished male and you, uh, and you catch him... Um, um, uh, and you use him before he gets fat and diabetic and transmit uh, and look at the, the outcome of his offspring, you still see that they get fat and diabetic. So there is a, a second generation effect through transmission on the males. So this model that we work on, which is this 50% caloric restriction of a pregnant female, looking at her, males and, her male and female offspring and then looking at the offspring of those male and, males and females, the grandchildren, we see very different outcomes when we look at the offspring from mother, from the, from the daughter, compared to the offspring from the son. In fact, in contrast to there being a more severe effect in offspring from the daughters, the effect is more severe from the fathers, from the, from, from the, from the sons that were undernourished. So what this suggests is that, the, um, that there may be... Well, let me just tell you the data. So... You have a, um, the, the son is born small, and his offspring are born small and get fat and diabetic. And this uh, happens at a penetrance of over 90%. So 90% of his offspring uh, 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 exhibit the phenotype. On maternal transmission, it's only 30 or 40% of the offspring. So it's, the outcome is much more severe if you've had an undernourished dad than if you've had an undernourished mum. And one of the hypotheses that we're interested in testing is whether, in fact, mother provides some sort of protection. So there's a program. The mother knows that she's had this, um, this compromise, and she's programming her offspring to be, um, to be protected against it. Um, it's quite a difficult, again, it's quite a difficult hypothesis to test, um, but, but one, of the, one of the mechanistic ideas that we're looking at is the idea that mitochondria, which, are the, which is the, the energy fuel um, uh, um, pump of, of, of the cell, which is inherited from mother, is actually programmed to provide some protection, um, and that the, the paternal offspring, um, um, the offspring of fathers, don't get the... Don't get, 
uh, a programmed mitochondria because their, their, their mothers have come from a, a normal, healthy source. And it's the fathers that have been compromised. Does that make sense? So, yeah, so basically there, there, there are outcomes that are different depending on whether you're uh, inheriting the compromise from your mother or your father. And sometimes the phenotype is more severe if you inherit from father. And we really don't know what the mechanism is. That's fascinating. Okay, any other questions from the audience? Here we go. Here's one. Um, with the experiment where the mothers are starved and the affecting sons, has it been taken... Does it know how long, how yeah. many generations it's surviving? Ten generations? Does it, how many yeah. generations so does it survive? That's a great question. So, and a very important question. Because the reason why it's an important question is because um, in a mother that is undernourished there is her fetus, but not only is there her fetus, but there are the primordial germ cells that are going to give rise to the eggs and sperms of her grandchildren. So in fact, those germ cells are seeing the environmental compromise as well. So when you, go, when you, under, when you stress a mother or undernourish a mother and ask what happens in her grandchildren, that's not a true transgenerational experiment because the germ cells that gave rise to those grandchildren also saw the stressor and the compromise. The question you ask is exactly the right one because to be a true transgenerational ex experiment, you have to ask what happens to the great-grandchildren, the, the products of the germ cells that never saw that undernourishment when they were in that grandmother. Um, and if you were to ask me, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have said, oh, you know, they'll be fine. You know, this is a short-term thing. But actually, the experiments are ongoing at the moment, and actually it looks like there is some kind of impact. Um, in the, the numbers are still low, but it looks like there is an effect to the next generation, and that's, you know, that's going to require a lot of animals to, 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 to quantify this properly. But it's a very important question, and it has huge implications for mechanism. It's interesting because I asked you that very question in 2014 uh -huh. and you said to me, no, no further than two generations. Yeah. And so things have moved on. Well, in yeah, it takes a long time years. to do these experiments. No, and, I, and I, I think I probably said, ooh, I don't think so. I can't imagine well, it would possibly give, go another generation. <laughs> no. But in fact, I couldn't imagine that it would go properly. Because actually, there it doesn't, you, you know, that... That's, you know, the, for, I'm a geneticist, okay? To inherit things from one generation to the next, the mechanisms, the most parsimonious explanation are genetic mechanisms. So to try and, um, and, and of course, we know that we can transmit genetic things for many, many, many generations. So to transmit non-genetic things is actually, you know, really quite difficult to, to get one's head around. Oh, <laughs> um, okay, well, there we go. I'm not sure whether this is a stupid question or not, but when the sperm and egg cells, when they're stripped of their methyl groups and then it's remethylated, does that happen in exactly the same places? So is, is yeah, it no, that's not object? a stupid question at all. The answer is no. And originally we thought that that was just going to apply to imprints. We know that the imprints are different from the two on the two parental chromosomes, and we thought that everything else was probably going to be the same. But actually it turns out that it's, it's different in more than just the imprints. It's, it's quite different um, um, throughout the whole genome. So there's something about the epigenetic agenda in the male germline that is different from the epigenetic agenda in the female germline. But what happens is that after fertilization, and maybe this is why we have the second wave, um, when it gets wiped out um, and re-established, then it comes back all in the same place. Because, of course, those two chromosomes are in the same 
uh, in the same environment, they're in the same cell, they're responding to the same signals that are putting marks back. And so the, the differences are resolved in, um, uh, for, most of the, for most of the epigenome, except for imprints where the memory is retained and those, are, those, those keep their difference. So in fact, the important mechanistic thing about imprinting is not putting the marks on differently in the two parental germlines, but retaining them uh, differently after fertilization during that second wave. Um, there was a lady here. Yeah. Going back to the um, Dutch famine, yes. um, you said that the children that were born during the famine were compared with their siblings. Were these siblings that were born later, afterwards, or before? Because if there was effect on the effect on the germ cells of the adults who suffered the famine, was that effect... Yeah, now that's a, that, that's a good question. I think it was both, in fact. Right. Um, uh, the other thing that, 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 that of course, um, was taken into account was when conception occurred during the famine. And what that identified was that there were windows of vulnerability at which the impact on the, on the outcome was greater. And, in fact, if you were conceived during the famine rather than if you had already been gestating when the famine started, it was more severe. So this, so this window of pre-implantation development, potentially this zygotic reprogramming phase, which would have been going on during the famine, that might have been, um, that, that was a, that's a, a, a period of vulnerability, a greater period of vulnerability than a later gestating embryo. Um, the other interesting thing is that there was a similar famine in the Soviet Union, I believe, um, and that famine continued for much longer, and they looked at the outcomes of individuals who were born, who were conceived during famine and born during famine and were continued, continued to, 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 um, uh, to be nurtured during a famine period, and they didn't have these onset diseases, very, very consistent with this thrifty phenotype idea of Barker and Hales, that if you're if you're, that during gestation you're being programmed for a compromised environment, if you're born into that compromised environment, you actually do better than if you're born into an environment where, you're, where you know, food is plentiful. Uh, Anne, that was such an amazing talk. The answers were so interesting. I've got even more questions <laughs> on the task, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you.